Chapter Twenty Seven B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Seven B Washington again threatened, Lincoln under fire, unpopular measures, the President's perplexities and trials, the famous letter to whom it may concern little expectation of re-election, cheered and reassured. Ex-Governor Bross of Illinois furnishes an account of an interview with Lincoln during this dark period. The last time I saw Mr. Lincoln, till as a pallbearer I accompanied his remains to their last resting-place, was in the early part of August 1864. It was directly after the frightful disaster at Petersburg and I was on my way to the front to recover, if possible, the body of my brother, Colonel John A. Bross, who fell there at the head of his regiment. I found the President with a large pile of documents before him. He laid down his pen, and gave me a cordial but rather melancholy welcome, asking anxiously for news from the West. Neither of us could shut our eyes to the gloom which hung over the entire country. The terrible losses of the wilderness, and the awful disaster at Petersburg, weighed heavily upon our spirits. To a question I answered that the people expected a still more vigorous prosecution of the war. More troops and needful appliances would, if called for, be forthcoming. "'I will tell you what the people want,' said the President. "'They want, and must have, success. But whether that come or not, I shall stay right here, and do my duty.' Here I shall be, and they may come and hang me on that tree, pointing out of the window to one. But God helping me, I shall never desert my post. This was said in a way that assured me that these were the sentiments of his inmost soul. The President, about this time, was greatly worried by Horace Greeley and others who importuned him to receive negotiations for peace from the Confederate authorities. He at length said to Mr. Greeley, "'I not only intend a sincere effort for peace, but you shall be a personal witness that it is made.' On the same day that the call for additional troops was made, the President issued, through Mr. Greeley, the famous letter to whom it may concern, promising safe conduct to any person or persons authorized to present any proposition which embraces the restoration of peace the integrity of the whole Union, and the abandonment of slavery. Nothing came of the proposed negotiations except to stop for a time the mischievous fault-finding, which was of course the result aimed at by Lincoln. The act was severely condemned by many Republicans, but Lincoln only said, It is hardly fair for them to say the letter amounts to nothing. It will shut up Greeley, and satisfy the people who are clamoring for peace. That's something, anyhow." So much blame was heaped upon the government, and so great was the dissatisfaction at the North, that Lincoln looked upon the election of his competitor, General McClellan, and his own retirement as not improbable. An incident in evidence of his discouragement is related by Secretary Wells. Entering the executive office one day, Mr. Wells was asked to write his name across the back of a sealed paper which the President handed him. The names of several other members of the cabinet were already on the paper, 
with the dates of signature. After the election, Lincoln opened the document in the presence of his cabinet, and read to them its contents as follows. Executive Mansion, Washington, August 23, 1864 This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be re-elected. Then it will be my duty to cooperate with the President-elect, so as to save the union between the election and the inauguration. A. Lincoln By this careful prevision had Lincoln pledged himself to give to his successor that unselfish and patriotic assistance of which he himself had stood so sorely in need. As the desperation of the South and the opposition to Lincoln at the North increased, fears were entertained by his friends that an attempt might be made upon his life. Lincoln himself paid but little heed to these forebodings of evil. He said philosophically, I long ago made up my mind that if anybody wants to kill me, he will do it. If I wore a shirt of mail and kept myself surrounded by a bodyguard, it would be all the same. There are a thousand ways of getting at a man if it is desired that he should be killed. Besides, in this case, it seems to me, the man who would succeed me would be just as objectionable to my enemies, if I have any. One dark night, as he was going out with a friend, he took along a heavy cane remarking good-humouredly that mother, Mrs. Lincoln, had got a notion into her head that I shall be assassinated, and to please her I take a cane when I go over to the War Department at nights, when I don't forget it. It is probable that the attempts upon the life of President Lincoln were more numerous than is generally known, an incident of a very thrilling character which might easily have involved a shocking tragedy is related by Mr. John W. Nichols, who from the summer of 1862 until 1865 was one of the President's bodyguard. One night, about the middle of August, 1864, says Mr. Nichols, I was doing sentinel duty at the large gate through which the entrance was had to the grounds of the soldiers' home near Washington, where Mr. Lincoln spent much time in summer. About eleven o'clock I heard a rifle shot in the direction of the city, and shortly afterwards I heard approaching hoofbeats. In two or three minutes a horse came dashing up, and I recognized the belated president. The horse he rode was a very spirited one, and was Mr. Lincoln's favorite saddle-horse. As horse and rider approached the gate, I noticed that the president was bareheaded. As soon as I had assisted him in checking his steed, the president said to me, he came pretty near getting away with me, didn't he? He got the bit in his teeth before I could draw the rein. I then asked him where his hat was, and he replied that somebody had fired a gun off down at the foot of the hill, and that his horse had become scared and had jerked his hat off. I led the animal to the executive cottage, and the President dismounted and entered. Thinking the affair rather strange, a corporal and myself started off to investigate. When we reached the place whence the sound of the shot had come, a point where the driveway intersects with the main road, we found the President's hat. It was a plain silk hat, and upon examination we discovered a bullet hole through the crown. We searched the locality thoroughly, 
but without avail. Next day I gave Mr. Lincoln his hat, and called his attention to the bullet-hole. He made some humorous remark to the effect that it was made by some foolish marksman, and was not intended for him, but added that he wished nothing said about the matter. We all felt confident it was an attempt to kill the President, and after that he never rode alone. Amidst his terrible trials, Lincoln often exhibited a forced and sorrowful serenity, which many mistook for apathy. Even his oldest and best friends were sometimes deceived in this way. Honorable Leonard Sweat relates a touching instance. In the summer of 1864, when Grant was pounding his way toward Richmond, in those terrible battles of the wilderness, myself and wife were in Washington trying to do what little two persons could do toward alleviating the sufferings of the maimed and dying in the vast hospitals of that city. We tried to be thorough and systematic. We took the first man we came to, brought him delicacies, wrote letters to his friends, or did for him whatever else he most needed. Then the next man, and so on. Day after day cars and ambulances were coming in, laden with untold sorrows for thousands of homes. After weeks of this kind of experience my feelings became so wrought up that I said to myself, The country cannot long endure this sacrifice. In mercy both to north and south, every man capable of bearing arms must be hurried forward to grant to end this fearful slaughter at the earliest possible moment. I went to President Lincoln at the White House, and poured myself out to him. He was sitting by an open window and as I paused a bird lit upon a branch just outside, and was twittering and singing most joyously. Mr. Lincoln, imitating the bird, said, Tweet, 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 isn't he singing sweetly? I felt as if my legs had been cut from under me. I rose, took my hat, and said, I see the country is safer than I thought. As I moved toward the door, Mr. Lincoln called out in his hearty, familiar way, here, Sweat, come back, and sit down. Then he went on, It is impossible for a man in my position not to have thought of all those things. Weeks ago every man capable of bearing arms was ordered to the front, and everything you have suggested has been done. The burdens borne by Lincoln seemed never to tell so seriously on his strength and vitality as in this terrible battle summer of 1864. For him there had been no respite, no holiday. Others left the heat and dust of Washington for rest and recuperation, but he remained at his post. The demands upon him were incessant. One anxiety and excitement followed another, and under the relentless strain even his sturdy strength began to give way. "'I sometimes fancy,' said he, with pathetic good humor, "'that every one of the numerous grist ground through here daily from a senator seeking a war with France down to a poor woman after a place in the Treasury Department, darted at me with thumb and finger, picked out their especial piece of my vitality, and carried it off. When I get through with such a day's work, there is only one word which can express my condition, and that is flabbiness. Once Mr. Brooks found him sitting in his chair, so collapsed and weary that he did not look up or speak when I addressed him. He put out his hand, mechanically, as if to shake hands, when I told him I had come at his bidding, 
Presently he roused a little, and remarked that he had had a mighty hard day. Mr. Riddle, who saw him at this period after some months' absence, says he was shocked on gaining admission to the President, by his appearance, that of a baited, cornered man, always on the defense against attacks that he could not openly meet and defy or punish. Mr. Carpenter, an inmate of the White House, says, Absorbed in his papers, he would become unconscious of my presence, while I intently studied every line and shade of expression in that furrowed face. There were days when I could scarcely look into it without crying. During the first week of the battles of the wilderness, he scarcely slept at all. Passing through the main hall of the domestic apartment on one of these days, I met him, clad in a long morning wrapper, pacing back and forth a narrow passage leading to one of the windows, his hands behind him, great black rings under his eyes, his head bent forward upon his breast, altogether such a picture of the effects of sorrow, care, and anxiety, as would have melted the hearts of the worst of his adversaries, who so mistakenly applied to him the epithets of tyrant and usurper. Mr. Edward Dicey, the English historian, says, Never in my knowledge have I seen a sadder face than that of the late President during the time his features were familiar to me. It is so easy to be wise after the event, but it seems to me now that one ought somehow to have foreseen that the stamp of a sad end was impressed by nature on that rugged, haggard face. The exceeding sadness of the eyes and their strange sweetness were the one redeeming feature in a face of unusual plainness and there was about them that odd, weird look which some eyes possess, of seeming to see more than the outer objects of the world around. Lincoln's family and friends strove to beguile him of his melancholy. They took him to places of amusement. They walked and drove with him in the pleasantest scenes about the capital, and above all they talked with him of times past, seeking to divert his mind from its present distress by reviving memories of more joyous days. His old friends were, as Mr. Arnold states, shocked with the change in his appearance. They had known him at his home and at the courts in Illinois, with a frame of iron and nerves of steel, as a man who hardly knew what illness was, ever genial and sparkling with frolic and fun, nearly always cheery and bright. Now they saw the wrinkles on his face and forehead deepen into furrows. The laugh of old days was less frequent, and it did not seem to come from the heart. Anxiety, responsibility, care, thought, disasters, defeats, the injustice of friends, wore upon his giant frame, and his nerves of steel became at times irritable. He said one day, with a pathos which language cannot describe, I feel as though I shall never be glad again. Honorable Schuyler Colfax repeats a similarly pathetic expression which fell from the lips of the afflicted President. One morning, says Mr. Colfax, calling upon him on business, I found him looking more than usually pale and careworn, and inquired the reason. He replied with the bad news he had received at a late hour the previous night, which had not yet been communicated to the press adding that he had not closed his eyes or breakfasted. And with an expression I shall never forget, he exclaimed, How willingly 
would i exchange places to-day with the soldier who sleeps on the ground in the army of the potomac a lady who saw lincoln in the summer of eighteen sixty four for the first time and who had expected to see a very homely man says i was totally unprepared for the impression instantly made upon me so bowed and sorrow-laden was his whole person expressing such weariness of mind and body as he dropped himself heavily from step to step down to the ground but his face oh the pathos of it haggard drawn into fixed lines of unutterable sadness with a look of loneliness as of a soul whose depth of sorrow and bitterness no human sympathy could ever reach i was so penetrated with the anguish and settled grief in every feature that i gazed at him through tears and felt i had stepped upon the threshold of a sanctuary too sacred for human feet the impression i carried away was that i had seen not so much the president of the united states as the saddest man in the world the changes in lincoln's appearance were noted in the subdued refined purified expression of his face as of one struggling almost against hope but still patiently enduring mr brooks says i have known impressionable women touched by his sad face and his gentle bearing to go away in tears another observer rev c b crane wrote at the time the president looks thin and careworn his form is bowed as by a crushing load his flesh is wasted as by incessant solicitude and his face is thin and furrowed and pale as though it had become spiritualized by the vicarious pain which he endured in bearing on himself all the calamities of his country truly it might be said of him in the words of matthew arnold with aching hands and bleeding feet we dig and heap lay stone on stone we bear the burden and the heat of the long day and wish twere done not till the hours of light return all we have built do we discern in the tragic experiences of lincoln in these dark days the outlook was less gloomy than it had seemed to his tortured soul he was even then as mr john bigelow puts it making for himself a larger place in history than he had any idea of he builded better than he knew and the hours of light were soon to come when he would know what he had built and see the signs that promised better things the presidential election of eighteen sixty four demonstrated the abiding confidence of the people in him and his administration every loyal state but three new jersey delaware and kentucky gave him its electoral vote and his popular majority over mcclellan the democratic candidate was upwards of four hundred thousand lincoln was cheered but not exultant at the news late in the evening of election day november eighth eighteen sixty four he said in response to public congratulations i am thankful to god for this approval of the people but while deeply grateful for this mark of their confidence in me if i know my own heart my gratitude is free from any taint of personal triumph it is not in my nature to triumph over any one but i give thanks to almighty god for this evidence of the people's resolution to stand by free government and the rights of humanity 
while the election returns were coming in early in the evening lincoln was at the war department with a little group assembled to hear them read how different the scene from that in the quiet country town where he had waited for the returns on a similar occasion four years before then all was peace the lull before the storm now the storm had broken and its greatest fury was raging about that patient and devoted man who waited to hear the decision of the nation's supreme tribunal the voice of the people whose decree would settle the fate of himself and of the country mr charles a dana assistant secretary of war who was in the group gives this description of the scene general eckert was coming in continually with telegrams containing election returns mr stanton would read them and the president would look at them and comment upon them presently there came a lull in the returns and mr lincoln called me up to a place by his side dana said he have you ever read any of the writings of petroleum v nasby no sir i said i have only looked at some of them and they seemed to me funny well said he let me read you a specimen in pulling out a thin yellow-covered pamphlet from his breast pocket he began to read aloud mr stanton viewed this proceeding with great impatience as i could see but mr lincoln paid no attention to that he would read a page or a story pause to con a new election telegram and then open the book again and go ahead with a new passage finally mr chase came in and presently mr whitelaw read and then the reading was interrupted mr stanton went to the door and beckoned me into the next room i shall never forget his indignation at what seemed to him disgusting nonsense the morning following the election one of his private secretaries mr neal coming to the executive office earlier than usual found lincoln at his table engaged in his regular routine of official work entering the room says mr neal i took a seat by his side extended my hand and congratulated him upon the vote for the country's sake and for his own sake turning away from the papers which had been occupying his attention he spoke kindly of his competitor the calm prudent general and great organizer the importance of lincoln's re-election to the country and to himself is forcibly stated by general grant and secretary seward the former telegraphed from city point the day following the victory is worth more to the country than a battle won and the same evening at a public gathering held to celebrate the event mr seward said the election has placed our president beyond the pale of human envy or human harm as he is above the pale of human ambition henceforth all men will come to see him as we have seen him a true loyal patient patriotic and benevolent man having no longer any motive to malign or injure him detraction will cease and abraham lincoln will take his place with washington and franklin and jefferson and adams and jackson among the benefactors of the country and of the human race lincoln evidently felt greatly reassured by the result of what had seemed to him a very doubtful contest but with the return of cheerfulness came also the dread of continuing his official labors he began to long and plan for that happy period at the end of the second term when he should be free from public burdens mrs lincoln 
desired to go to Europe for a long tour of pleasure, says Mr. Brooks. The President was disposed to gratify her wish, but he fixed his eyes on California as a place of permanent residence. He had heard so much of the delightful climate and the abundant natural productions of California that he had become possessed of a strong desire to visit the state and remain there if he were satisfied with the results of his observations. "'When we leave this place,' he said one day, "'we shall have enough, I think, to take care of us old people. The boys must look out for themselves. I guess mother will be satisfied with six months or so in Europe. After that I should really like to go to California and take a look at the Pacific coast.'" End of chapter 27b. Recording by Bill Borst.